Hello, and welcome to our podcast, How Therapy Works, a non-denominational guide to psychotherapy for new and experienced therapists. We're here to help you understand what's going on in your sessions and what to do next. This is a standalone podcast, as well as a chapter-by-chapter companion guide to Dr. Smith's book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide. And I'm Jeffrey Smith, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at New York Medical College, and we're here to help you navigate the therapeutic space. And I'm Amelie Southwood, a mental health counselor in private practice, certified in EMDR. Today, we're going to introduce you to a few of the most helpful concepts to clarify the work we do. This podcast is a companion to chapter 12 in the book. And Dr. Smith, you titled chapter 12, Working with the Inner Child. And You know, this chapter strikes me as being a really important one, and chapter 13 also, because while we may help our patients uh, be better adapted to life, we ourselves need to learn to adapt uh, rather instantly to this person who walks into the room and, and whom we meet for the first time, ostensibly to help them. And you talk about or in chapter 12, you discuss working with the inner child and talk about the importance of being able to recognize the inner child in the patient in order for the therapy to be effective. And I was wondering, could you tell us what your your main idea about working with the inner child is and how it relates to transference? Right. Well, one thing you you'd notice if you looked at the table of contents of this book is unlike practically every other textbook of talk therapy, this one doesn't have a chapter on transference. And there's a reason. It's a pretty radical one. It's because in in my own work, I have come to essentially replace the concept of transference with the idea of working with an inner child. And so we'll talk in this chapter about some of the reasons for doing that. And I agree that the next chapter on the various adjustments that we'll need to make, how much to talk and how to, what language to use and things like that will be very important. But first in this chapter, let me, let me introduce this kind of radical change that came about in the way I think about transference. Okay. Uh, The way I was taught transference and practically everybody else is that it's essentially a distortion that transference is when the the client doesn't see you as you really are anymore, but is relating to you more according to a template from earlier in their life. And so they're relating to you as the mother who says no or something like that. Well, that's a rather harsh way to look at it as a distortion. It's rather negative. And what's become more and more clear to me is that we're really working with not a distorted understanding, but with a part of the, of the client's mind that's functioning more like a child who's trying to solve a problem in the ways that children solve problems. And if we look at it that way, we'll find that we're not only more accurate and better tuned into what's really going on, but also we'll do it with more compassion because we realize that we're talking to a young person who's doing things the way young people do, and and it's perfectly reasonable and makes perfectly good sense, except in a context that's not 
actually the, the here and now context. So in, in the first paragraph, right off the bat, you, you give an example of how, for instance, arguments between spouses regular take, regularly take on a, a life and death quality that goes far beyond the trivial issue in question. And you, you mentioned or you, you mentioned procedural memory mm -hmm. and that they're operating from procedural memory. Can, can you tell us more about that, please? Well, right. Well, episodic memory, which is the opposite, is I remember two plus two equals four, the things that you learned. And episodic memory is also about what happened to me. I remember that when I was such and such an age, I did such and such. Procedural memory is like how you know how to drink water from a glass. Mm -hmm. Procedural memory are all the things that you just know and that you learned without really knowing that you were learning them. You don't think of them as learned. You just think of them as this is the way things are. And a lot of the ways, the patterns that determine how we relate to people come from long ago. And there are things that will trigger a certain pattern. And so if one spouse is, is looking for, let's say, a certain kind of attention from the other, and it, doesn't, it isn't forthcoming because the other one is unfamiliar and, and just doesn't know those patterns, then it may lead to a lot of distress and anger and not knowing how to ask, because all of this has gone on on a nonverbal, instinctive level previously. And so people make, make many assumptions about life and when you get into a relationship, you don't really know about the other person's assumptions, but also most of us aren't aware of our own assumptions. And so we have two people coming at this relationship, imagining that this is how relationships work and not realizing that the other person may have a very different procedural memory about how relationships should work. So people's assumptions are the effects or the product of procedural memory. Of procedural memory, exactly. Uh -huh. um, yes, the, the inner child is, goes a little bit further than that. Because what, what that's really about is usually when, when people come to therapy, they're coming because there's a problem. There's something that's going wrong. There's something that's, that's missing. And very often that has to do with some unfinished business from early life. So could you... Could you talk to us a little bit about uh, the example that you use um, with the patient who quit therapy because the therapist refused to change the thermostat? Right. Um, so patient said, it's too cold in here. Would you turn up the thermostat? And the therapist said, no, I'm an analyst and I'm not going to do that. And, and the patient was quite upset, angry. She was cold and she uh, really insisted on it. And the analyst said, absolutely, no, I'm not going to do that. And after a while, they came back to this a, a few times and eventually the patient quit the therapy. And I, I assume that the analyst thought that what he was doing was maintaining the frame or something like that. But what was really going on is there was an inner child who was testing him testing to see if he was willing to be flexible, if he was willing to listen to, the other, to his client's needs and, and be willing to bend a little bit to take those into account. And he failed the test. Well, that test was important because, because that client was trying to solve 
something that was missing from early life, like being taken into account, being listened to. And she was looking to solve that. Well, how do children solve a problem of something that they missed out on when they were little and they've never been able to find it? They just wait. They wait quietly. They don't say much out loud. The adult has no idea that they need attention or that they're looking for somebody to take them seriously, but that is lurking. And so they go to therapy and all of a sudden you have a therapist there who's exactly the person whose job it is to listen and to take you seriously and, and understand you. And so under those circumstances, the inner child begins to come out. You might call it transference now that the child seems to be insistent on things that aren't really that necessary, like having turning up the thermostat. But that's not what's going on. It's really a child who's trying to solve a problem by getting the therapist to give what was missed out on in early life. That's how children solve problems. They don't try to figure out how to solve it themselves. They know that grown-ups can solve problems anytime they want to. All they have to be is motivated, and then they can do anything they desire. And so the child wants to find out if the therapist is the kind of person who's motivated to take care of things. And for us as, as therapists, we need to be on the lookout for circumstances in this adult patient's life, mm -hmm. both in and outside of the therapy room, that match those experienced early life or those early life experiences. We may catch it in some place like that, or maybe we're just going to catch it in the unfolding of the, of the therapeutic relationship. And so let's think for just a minute about, we've talked a little bit about how, how children solve problems, but then what's the outcome here? How is this going to work out? Because if the therapist says, okay, I'm just going to give this child all of the attention and, and respect that was missing in, in her early life, and then that's going to fix things, it turns out it doesn't fix things. It doesn't fix things because in order to really repair the damage from early life, the real damage is the disappointment that the, and anger that the child experienced at the shortfall. We're going to have to go through that anger and disappointment. And so just giving what was missing doesn't really fix that part of it. And besides that, when children are missing something, it's usually something in the order of what mothers can do, having a 24-7 one-way relationship with no strings attached. Mom gives you everything and asks for nothing. And that's pretty hard for anybody in adult life to do. Sure. <laughs> so what's really going to have to happen is that there's going to need to be a strong enough relationship there between the therapist and the inner child that the inner child will understand that ultimately that the therapist really can't do that. And both of them will be together in helping to process to grieve what never was and never can be and to help the, the client understand how to go out there in the world, starting maybe with the therapist, a therapeutic relationship, how to go out the world in the world and get what you can get from adult relationships. But that's a different thing. That's not something that's just bestowed upon you. It's something that involves a two-way relationship where each person has something to con contribute and um, 
and to give. So inevitably, there's going to be disappointment. There's going to need to be a strength in the patient-therapist relationship to help the, the client cope with that disappointment and even anger. And the therapist is going to have to be willing to, to address disappointment and anger, maybe not originating in the therapist, but directed at the therapist. Right. So, so at some point, it helps tremendously for the client to be able to understand that there actually have been two people in the room, three people in the room, the inner child, the adult client, and the therapist, and that the therapist is really not the one that those wishes were really directed towards, that the therapist can't really fulfill all of those wishes, that those have more to do with early life than they do with, with the current situation. And that's a very tough one to get to. Uh, some people have a lot of trouble understanding because understanding that they have an inner child, accepting that, they, that there is a childlike part of them that's looking for things from the therapist that the therapist can't really give. So, okay, so I have two questions. One is how to recognize the inner child and differentiating the inner child from the adult self. And two, is it wise to bring up the term inner child in therapy? Is well, it wise to actually introduce to the patient, to introduce the patient to his or her inner child and say, oh, behold, I recognize this part of you? Some people are, are more ready to think about that and, and to think in those terms, and other people have a lot of trouble with it. The main reason why inner children are not usually recognized is because we all have values that, that favor growing up and being, being big and mature. And so when we find ourselves reacting, having feelings and reactions that are more childlike, that's embarrassing. It, it often leads to a lot of shame. And so what, what people do is they sort of rationalize and cover up and try to talk as if what they're looking for is really perfectly reasonable, like turning up the thermostat. They'll find an issue that is reasonable to cover up the fact that they're really looking for a kind of attention that they've never had before. So the inner child is, is often not very visible, is pretty hidden. And when you try to say that, then you're asking, you're telling your clients something that they may be ashamed to hear and, and may feel very defensive about it. So it's gonna take a lot of tact and sometimes waiting for it to be pretty obvious and pretty dramatic that something's going on, that you're asking something of me that I'm not really going to be able to do and you're really upset with me that I'm not doing this for you and yet what you really are looking for is something that I can't do and there's a reason for that. And the reason is that, that there is a part of you and so a part of you might be a more tactful way to say it. There's a part of you that's looking for us to find a solution to that lack of attention and, and lack of respect that you experienced when you were young. Okay, so we, we want to be tactful. We don't want to go thrashing through the bushes, hoping to coax the tender forest creature to come out. Mm-hmm. Fine. You give us some bullet points and mm -hmm. some tips on how to recognize the inner child 
tender creature that it is in hiding. Could you please run through these with us? Because they're, they're actually very interesting. Yeah, this was your second question. So, so one of the things that might tell you that there's, a, that there's an inner child. So inner children don't usually ask directly because their experience, their procedural memory from long ago tells them that if you ask directly, you're going to get slapped in the face or, or sent to your room or something bad like that. Rejected. Rejected. And so they don't do that. So they, so then what are they going to do? They have to, they have to put on some kind of charade or some kind of way to hint to you that, that you really do need to attend to something that's, that's troubling them. So just for starters, then when you, when the client is seeking something from you that you can't do, or that's not the usual, a usual part of the therapy, that would be one hint that's that's really asking you to say hmm maybe there is there is a young person in there who's looking for something and maybe this thing that they're asking for is only a token of what they really want but it maybe it's a test case like the thermostat another one is is when you're starting to experience feelings around issues in the therapy that seem to be stronger than you'd expect from an adult client who's who's able to be rational and reasonable. Another one would be um, would be particularly intense feelings about the therapist. In, in my blog, many many of the posts deal with clients who've developed very strong attachments to their therapist, so that they feel like if the therapy ever ends, that they're going to die, that they couldn't cope with that. And those things are usually not talked about. Uh, clients feel too ashamed of those feelings, and so. As a therapist, you're going to have to catch some, some hints that there are intense feelings going on here. And so I have uh, some patients who have developed very strong feelings for me who tell me, I love you. Mm-hmm. And they don't know me. Mm-hmm. You know? They know me in the therapy room and, you know, and, and they get a lot of information from me just from our interaction and, and just my being there. But, okay, so there's an inner child. Yes, as a therapist, what would you recommend I do with that? Well, first of all, that you not freak out. Um, okay, I won't freak out. <laughs> because, because, you know, whatever it is, there's a young being in there who's got needs and who believes that you're the one who's going to make everything better. And you're the one who's going to fulfill those needs. So now you're in a tricky position because ultimately you're going to have to be disappointing but if you just slam the door like the like the analyst who said he wouldn't change the thermostat, then you're going to lose that young that child. And so Freud said, don't interpret the positive transference, and and that's probably right because that's a very very wounding sort of thing to do, to to question or criticize or um, the client's attachment to you. You might say, you know, there may be things that you might be thinking of, of wanting from me that I, that I might not be able to do. And I'd, I'd love you to tell me about if you've had fantasies about things that you'd like to happen uh, between us that you haven't talked about. And that's one thing where you indicate your insistence that it's really about understanding, not about fulfillment. But this is, a, this is a delicate thing, and there are very strong feelings going on there, so you want to 
treat it with a great deal of respect and eventually get to understand that that you're being you're be, you've been identified as the one who's going to fill some empty places that are that are still there some other tip-offs that might be there um right thinking about life because children think children don't have a concept of time they begin to have some idea of time around age five and a half but very often the patterns we're talking about started even earlier than that so when somebody says well am i ever going to get better is this is this wound going to going to last forever that's somebody who doesn't have a concept of time at, at that moment. And that would be definitely an indication that the place where these thoughts and con- this conversation is coming from is a very childlike place. You write issues seen as resolving magically, such as finding a mate without working at building a relationship. Exactly. So, so children, again, don't even bother to ask themselves how a problem might be solved. Grown-ups say, well, let's see, what am I going to have to do? Do I go to, uh, you know, online dating or, or whatever? But children don't think that way. They just think that they need to motivate the grown-ups to do what they're supposed to do, and then it's going to be fine. So there is a kind of magicalness, belief that if you're perfect in some way, then that's going to make everything work out for you. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of magical. So so then for those uh, for those patients you know, the vast number of of my caseload, of those in my caseload suffer from perfectionism. How does that relate to the inner child? Very often that that relates to the inner child in the sense that that the child feels like, well, if I'm perfect, then that's going to motivate the grown-ups. Then then the grown-ups are going to do what they need to do. Because one of the ways children hold on to a sense of hope is when the parents aren't coming through with some basic need that they have, then children hold on to hope by blaming themselves. That's why when there's a divorce so often, the children think that it's their fault. There's actually something very positive in that. If you can't fix the grown-ups, if the problem is you, then you can fix yourself. You can try extra hard to be really, really, really good, or even to be perfect in the hope that then that's what the grown-ups are looking for. And when they, when they see that, then they're going to be willing to put their effort into making things better. Okay. You write also that a good way to recognize the inner child is when uh, the patient presents excessive upset over limitations to the frame, the therapeutic frame, and what the therapist can do. Right. In other words, like maybe the, the client wants you to do something extra, like would you would you... Uh, be open to, and, and maybe this is something that you don't do in your, in your, in your practice, uh, to have communication in between sessions, let's say, and that becomes a really big issue. Well, that's a sure sign that, that you're dealing with not an, not an adult, but with a, with a childlike uh, kinds of needs. And those needs are really, again, tokens of something deeper and more important. They're, they're like test cases. And, and the last thing in that list is, is when, there, when there's an excessive amount of anger about circumstances that the client can't control. And, you know, anger always implies that, that in, the, in our mind, we're thinking that somebody is at fault. So when, when people get angry about, about something that they, that's just one of those things or that's, that's some 
you know, crummy person around who treated them, them poorly. And it's just the way things are like the, like the teller at the bank or something like that. You, there's an implication that there's a feeling in there that somebody should have fixed that. Right. The way I, I know that is if you think about, about lightning, if lightning should strike somebody, who gets angry about that? Nobody. Right. You know, it's because just, it's lightning. It just happened. And the world is full of crummy people and do crummy things. Yes. If, yeah. If we waste our time and our energy with anger about that, we're, it's not going to get us anywhere. So that when we do have that kind of anger, it tends to be an indication that there's a childlike belief that some big person out there should be making things right for them. I guess in this day and age, in this very strange time of the corona pandemic, we're seeing a lot of that right now. It's true. And, and to a certain extent, that's part of adult life that, um, that we kind of do believe in karma or, or whatever it is that's going to set things right. And most of the time it's okay. It doesn't really cause any harm. But sometimes, sometimes clients really will lose a, a tremendous amount of emotional energy, invest a lot of emotional energy in raging about the world being the way it is. I generally think of that as, as being a childlike response and it, that it would help that person to save their energy for better things that they can do something about. So I, I really appreciate the word of caution that you give us about missing the patient's inner child. And you write that in practice, transference does not feel like a phenomenon. It feels like life. And that transference or the expression of the inner child is cloaked in very adult sounding words. Exactly. Because nobody wants to reveal their immaturity, uh, but, it's, but it's there. And what I think when people have an impasse in therapy, when they, when, they, when they get stuck in therapy, it's very simple. Nine times out of 10, it's because there's a transference that's been missed. And what I like to think for myself is it's probably staring you in the face. And right. so that's the time to take a step back and think about it and ask yourself about what's going on in the therapeutic relationship. And, and that's where you're probably missing a, an inner child. Why? Because because those are things that we tend to react to in our own programmed procedural memory ways, like the analyst who wouldn't turn the thermostat, hadn't stopped to ask himself what was really going on. He just applied a rule that you have your, you have your policies and you don't change them, whatever the patient might want. Right. It kind of sounds like the therapist was having his own um, inner child problems. <laughs> right. I think so. I think his inner child just wanted to be in control already. <laughs> Something exactly. like that. Now, so, okay. So now we know that the inner child uh, lies in waiting quietly, mm -hmm. waiting for the therapist or, you know, the adult to, mm -hmm. to solve the problem. We want to be tactful. Okay. Check, check. But, does the inner child ever have a temper tantrum? Oh boy, that's a good one. Um, so this is in a way, maybe I went through those bullet points, but this is the other half of, of ways to become aware of the, the presence of an inner child. When the grown-ups don't do what you need them to do, and it's a life and death matter because your emotional needs are life and death when you're young, 
then what are you going to do? You, now you've tried to be as perfect as you can. You've put up trial balloons and test cases, and it just looks like the grown-up is unwilling to do what, what they really need to do and what they sh should do. So what do you do? Well, you have a temper tantrum. But as an adult, you can't just rage and throw things in the, in the therapist's office. So what do you do that's going to catch the therapist's attention? Many of those things have to do with self-defeating, self-harmful, self-destructive behaviors. Because the therapist wants you to get better. So if you don't get better, that's a pretty good way to send them a hint that they might, there might be something that they haven't noticed. And somewhere in there, the, the inner child knows that, I mean, the inner child is not going to be behaving in this way inside the office, but taking this kind of this maladaptive behavior outside. Mm -hmm. Right, but inside the office too, if you see that, that somehow whatever you do isn't working, um, the client's not getting better, they seem to be doing their part, they seem to be doing everything they're supposed to, but, but it's not changing, that's starting to be a hint, and especially if it's actually causing, causing harm to the person's life, like if they're not doing well in their, in their career or in their uh, relationships, it, it may just be to, to give you a hint that things are not going the way they're supposed to go. Or it may get to be actually challenging the therapist and saying, you know, you're not, you're not doing your job right. And that's another kind of overt temper tantrum that the actually a negative transference as they used to call it, or, um, which is a, a child who's angry at the grown-up because the grown-up's not doing what they're supposed to do. And they'll of course express it in terms that are the most plausible they can come up with like you know it's reasonable to have the to have a warm office and you're refusing to change the thermostat you know what's wrong with you so that becomes a bone of contention or some other thing that the therapist did might be might become a subject of of contention and so pretty soon we have either a a life that's that's going down the drain and not getting better a therapy that's not going well or a therapeutic relationship that's not working and so then the question is, if you know that it's an, a temper tantrum, what can you do? Good question. Okay. So, so what do we do with a, with a two-year-old who's having a temper tantrum? Well, we're not going to put our patient in timeout. Right. Are we? No, I don't think so. <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> so I would say recognize the unmet need and meet it with understanding. That's ultimately where we want to get to. But in the meantime, when you have a two-year-old who's having a, a temper tantrum, the first thing you want to do is you want to give them a bear hug. Um, right. I think that, that you know, some, some parents isolate children, and I think that's really stressing them in exactly the place where they're most stressed already. So I don't think that helps much, because when people are really stressed, they don't learn anything. So I think giving them a bear hug that keeps them from, uh, from doing any damage. And then what happens is... So by bear hug, you're talking about containment. You're not talking about literal bear hug. Right. And if it's a two-year-old, it's a bear hug. If it's a, if it's a 32-year-old, then it's going to be containment. And we'll talk in a sec about what that's about. And what happens is 
is sort of like the, the temper tantrum goes on for a little while, the raging goes on for a little while, or maybe quite a long time, and, and then it turns to tears. And the tears represent when the child has recognized that whatever they wanted isn't going to be, but they're also ready to accept the love of the person who's holding them. So there's a softening. There's a softening. And what it really represents is learning to lose a battle gracefully. Learning that it's that, because what makes a temper tantrum so scary for children is that not only are they not getting what they want, but they're also in danger of losing the relationship with the grown-up. Because they're in such a rage that I want to kill you, mommy, I hate you. And, and so ultimately the outcome is something that the child hadn't conceived of, that it's possible to lose the battle and still have the love. And so then bringing it back to the therapy room, it's possible to, to have the temper tantrum, mm -hmm. to exhibit all of these maladaptive and what may feel like shameful behaviors mm -hmm. and be contained and met by the therapist Mm -hmm. who remains steadfast and loyal to the treatment and to the patient. Right. And the, the containment might require referral to a hospital and the hospital becomes part of the container. But ultimately the, the person realizes that, that harming themselves just isn't going to work. It might involve talking about the self-defeating behaviors and that those are really not helpful and being patient enough to outlast them anything that you can think of to, to help to stop that. And if it's anger, it may just be outlasting the anger or helping the person to understand that the anger is really more relevant to their early life experience than it is to their therapeutic situation. And, and that's why, in general, when clients ask for some kind of token, I usually compromise I'll usually make, make sort of a deal with the client. I'll give you at least a little bit of what you're asking for, but in exchange, I want us both to take a look at and to understand what this, what this is about. What so, it is. Can you give us an example of, of what that would look like in the therapy room? Well, like with the, the intelligent, educated man in his 40s who wanted a little practical guidance on how to, how to navigate life. And I said, well, you know, I'm not sure that I have much to add over what you already know, but I'm glad to give you what I can. But I think it's important for us to, to take a look at, at where this request is coming from and what it might be about. And, and, you know, it might just relate to some unfinished business from a long time ago. Okay. That, in fact, that's probably going to take a lot longer time to, um, to work through, but that's the kind of thing that I, that I would have in mind. And sometimes it's just outlasting the anger. I, I have somebody I'm working with now who's been angry at me for a long, long time. It's kind of come to the point where she's just tired of being angry. She's still not quite buying the inner child idea, but she's kind of tired of being angry and we're starting to feel more like a partnership. But it's, it's taken a lot of stamina on my part to, to just be there in a relationship where, where there's a lot of anger directed directly at me. So I, I know that a patient's anger can, can be very off-putting for, for a lot of therapists, um, regardless of how long they've been practicing. 
uh, it seems that it's critical to make a clear distinction between what you know could be destructive or abusive in mm -hmm. a therapy room and what is simply the communication of an extremely intense emotion. Right, and so what they say to children nowadays is use your words. And, and that's, that's very useful for us that, you know, missing sessions is not going to help either of us uh, as a way of expressing your anger. But I would really like to understand exactly what it is that makes you feel so angry towards me. I want us to look at that together and to understand it. And, you know, somebody who wants to understand you, that's pretty attractive. That's pretty seductive even. Who, who wouldn't go for that? Um, at first, clients will, will prefer to act out their anger, maybe in some way disappoint you or do something that they know you're, you're not going to feel good about. But your insistence on understanding and on putting it into words is eventually going to get you there. Okay. Um, so this next part of the chapter here, I think is, is really interesting and very important. You, you mentioned schema therapy and the concept of limited reparenting. Another word for saying what I just said about compromising, mm -hmm. because the fact that you're willing to work with the inner child says that, that, you're, that you're okay, that there is a relationship there and that you, that, that you have a starting point. And so limited reparenting sort of says, well, I will, I will give you some of the things that you want within the context of what's feasible in a, in a therapeutic uh, setting. But if it was me, uh, I, would, I would be explicit that I think you're going to ultimately, that some part of you really wants more than that. And we're going to have to deal with the shortfall at the same time as I'm glad to give you what I am going to give. And I'm not trained in schema therapy, but I'm assuming that something like that goes on in, in schema therapy because ultimately it's dealing with the shortfall is where the, ther the therapeutic work really needs most to be done. So then in the case of, um, in your example of the patient who is a 40-year-old man, high-functioning man, wanting some advice, he's kind of looking for a father figure, someone to guide him along. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so by giving, him, by giving him some of that guidance, you are in a way reparenting him. Right. I'm doing a little bit, but it's understood from the beginning that it's not going to be everything that the inner child really, really is looking for. And that that's ultimately not really the solution because it's not the replacement. The inner child thinks that replacing what was missing is the solution, but it isn't. And, and so the child learning that is, is what's really most important. Learning that the original needs don't have to be completely fulfilled but the anger and the sense of disappointment and, and the, the wounds from that do have to be processed. Okay, moving on. What is very interesting to me, the manipulative patient. Right, and... <laughs> How I, does the manipulative patient present in the room? For example, uh, let's say the person who wants medication or who wants the therapist to, to do something that uh, that wouldn't be a good idea and and but puts you in a position where uh, You know, well, this is a this is a medical illness and I have a chem chemical imbalance. So you have to give me this medication That's a manipulation. The definition of manipulation is bypassing the other person's free will Right. 
So, you know, by telling me uh, I've got this diagnosis and you have to treat me for that, that's an attempt to bypass my free will because I don't think it's in the best, in the client's best interest. And, and there, there are other things like that where, where those kinds of manipulations might, uh, might take place. And so uh, I'm, I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but uh, not all of us prescribe. That's no. right. Let's say it's, it's writing a letter that would, that would get somebody out of something that you really think they would do better to deal with. Okay, right, okay. And then, you know, in this very self-sufficient culture that prizes rugged individualism, you mentioned the self-sufficient patient as someone to recognize in the therapy room. Yeah. Well, my best example of that one, so sometimes inner children say, well, okay, I can't get you to do what you're supposed to do. I'm not going to put on the temper tantrum. I'm just going to go and take care of it on my own. I'm going to go use marijuana, or I'm going to, uh, to find some other resource, or I'm going to find a girlfriend or boyfriend who's going to take care of all of these, these young needs. And then the energy goes out of the therapy and the therapy doesn't go anywhere. The most interesting example I, I can think of comes from China. A therapy patient, because I was a supervising at that point, a therapy patient began to develop a very strong needy transference, needy inner child who wanted attention from the therapist. And the therapist was trying to hold the frame and, and not be terribly gratifying. And so... This all came to a head and the patient didn't recognize what was going on at all, but she felt really, really upset. So what did she do? She went to the hospital emergency room and the doctor said, oh, you're depressed and gave her an antidepressant. And then she proceeded to tell all of her friends that she had depression. The therapy was kind of sidelined in the process. So the best antidote to that is probably to identify the inner child issues early and, and address them directly and begin to talk about that so that when the client has a crescendo of neediness, that then you can say, oh, wow, this is coming from that young part of you that we've been talking about. And I think there's something about the situation right now that's causing those needs to get extra strong. All right, you mentioned compassion. And the real compassion here, so we know we have compassion. And, and as soon as we're thinking in terms of inner children, then we, then we automatically are feeling compassionate. But what clients feel, what patients feel, is a sense of outrage that they have this immaturity that keeps intruding. And so they want to kick that little kid and put her in the closet and, and slam the door on her. And they don't like the fact, they'll criticize themselves over the fact that they have this immaturity and these unseemly infantile or young kinds of, kinds of wishes. And so a lot of the compassion has to do with helping the client be compassionate about their own childlike wishes and own unfinished business. And that's very important because you can't really resolve the inner child issues until you have understanding and compassion because the real resolution is for the adult patient to be sort of a compassionate parent to their own inner child. Right. And they learn that compassion from you. They, right. So you're mirroring your 
giving an example of a kind of acceptance and caring and respect and compassion for what are flagrantly immature behaviors and, and feelings. And you're teaching your adult client to accept those and to, to see them for what they are as natural and understandable and, and something that needs to, to be resolved by the three of you as a team. Right. In finding that resolution as a team, you provide what Carl Rogers called the corrective emotional experience. Right. Well, first I have to have a, collect, a corrective intellectual experience. It was Alexander in French. It's an error in the book, and I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize. It's not Carl Rogers. He's the one who, who came up with accurate empathy, which I love. But actually, Alexander and French were the ones who described the corrective emotional experience. And what they mean is, is something where the client has expectations that are usually not realistic, not in tune with here and now reality, but expectations that come out of that procedural learning. So maybe it's a negative expectation. Maybe the client expects the therapist to to say no and to be withholding. And then what happens is this comes up in a context with a good deal of affect, of feeling, and that feeling tells you that, that the important neural networks in the brain are being activated right now, and the client gets a surprise. You actually are accepting and warm, and that's not what they were anticipating at all or there's in some other way they were expecting something and what actually happens is different from the expectations. What we know now, since about uh, the year 2000, when memory reconsolidation was discovered, is we, we now know that the neural networks that contain those procedural memories get reconfigured when there's a surprise like that. And it happens very rapidly over um, a, a few hours after that surprise takes place and the old belief gets updated to fit with the new reality. It's a little more complicated than that, but the corrective emotional experience was really one of the first clear-cut descriptions of how new information can, can replace old inaccurate information that's based on situations that are no longer applicable in the person's life. That is the basis of EMDR. Well, EMDR and, and many other procedures, and I, it, if you look carefully, it's the basis of good psychoanalysis and the basis of emotion-focused therapy and, and ACT and a whole lot of different, uh, different therapies really, really look at, that, at exactly that kind of interaction. And that's one of the reasons why the field is so exciting right now because we're starting to use, to have basic science that's giving us a way to really understand the infrastructure that's common to all therapies. Right. And there are so many ways, uh, so many paths up the mountain, mm -hmm. right? so many ways of, of achieving that, that kind of result of healing mm -hmm. both the affect that was previously avoided mm -hmm. and inviting the patient to learn a new pattern of interpersonal behavior. Right. And, and this is a good place to, to, um, to point out that one of the requirements for that um, corrective emotional experience is activation of those old beliefs and schemas. And the way we know they're activated is there's feeling that comes out 
with the thoughts. And what I want to say is that that verbal exploration is one of the best ways, as, as it's part of EMDR too, but verbal exploration is one of the best ways to help people get in touch on a feeling level with their experiences. And so that's one of the reasons why asking why isn't just to find the answer. Asking why is, is a way of helping your client to activate the right neural networks in a, in a context where they can be updated and changed. Right. So that the inner child is brought forward into time mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. really merge and blend with the adult mm-hmm. so that we're reintegrating. Right. And finding out that self-destructiveness does not motivate people to help you. Finding out that being perfect is not the way to be loved. And finding out that expecting everybody to not want to be helpful to you isn't really the way the world works. Right. So this concludes Chapter 12 and today's podcast. Thank you for listening to the end. We hope it's been helpful to you. We'd love you to visit Dr. Smith's website at www.howtherapyworks.com where you can purchase the book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide, and find other articles for clients and therapists. Dr. Smith, would you like to add anything? So I'm just going to say it very clearly one more time that that as far as I'm concerned, I think that the inner child concept is more accurate and leads to a a better resolution and, and more appropriate compassion compared to transference. So as far as I'm concerned, I'm ready to toss transference in the trash and go with the inner child. So bye for now. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.